This is the Friends of History Debating Society. I'm John Batchelor. I welcome Professor H.J. Mackinder, International Relations, to comment on the Ukraine crisis and the changing face of three capitals, Moscow, Kiev, and Brussels. Brussels being the joint capital of the EU, which is hard-pressed because of the energy cutoffs and threatened cutoffs, and NATO, which is hard-pressed because it's made declarations declaring that Russia and China are the enemy. For China, the word malicious is especially surprising. However, we go to the G20 meeting taking place in Bali, Indonesia, where foreign ministers from 20 large states are meeting, including the large state of Russia. During a meeting on the sidelines of a group of 20 foreign ministers in Bali, Indonesia, reports Bloomberg, Blinken, Secretary of State Blinken, said he told Wang, the Chinese foreign minister, that China wasn't neutral on the Ukraine war because there's no such thing as being neutral when there is a clear aggressor. Mr. Blinken cited Chinese President Xi Jinping's recent call with Russia's Vladimir Putin as evidence of Beijing's ongoing support of Moscow. At the same time, we have headlines from Europe. Putin is set to halt gas and and Germany fears it's not coming back. Subhead, maintenance on a critical pipeline to Europe is an opportunity for the Kremlin to further squeeze the continent. This is Bloomberg reporting. This is news. This is not an opinion. Professor, a very good evening to you. Thank you very much. We go to Vladimir Putin. Good evening. Putin. Vladimir Putin saying we're maintaining the pipeline Nord Stream 1 routine shutdown. However, Germany is now entertaining the possibility that the natural gas that it depends on for its industry and its residents is to be cut off. How do you measure Moscow's point of view at this time, teasing that it will use the energy weapon in addition to the violence of Ukraine? Thank you. Thank you. Well, I think that... um Things have gone, are going well enough uh, for uh, Mr. Putin, both in Ukraine and also in diplomacy, that he's made the decision that uh, why not protract? I mean, protraction is is what you do if you think that something good or bad may uh, turn up. And uh, we've seen in the last week... uh, The war is escalating steadily, and it's unlikely to stop doing that, and certainly it's not going to stop doing that because of diplomacy. We've lost uh, two major figures, Boris Johnson, who was erratic but was very, very strong in his support of Ukraine, and uh, Mr. Abe in Japan, uh, who brings... Who, who was very aware, for instance, of the joint Russian-Chinese naval activities and the, their, their joint passage through the Tsugaru Strait and various other issues, the loss of the Japanese share in the Sakhalin uh, oil uh, and gas exploration. So, uh, as happens, as wars, the longer they go, usually the, the worse they get. And I think Putin's decided that if he keeps pounding, maybe uh, maybe he'll be able to get out of it. Uh, he has uh, he has made some improvements uh, in um, in the, the the armament of certain improvements. The S four hundred 
um, anti-aircraft system, which is proverbially good, is being installed in uh, the Russian-occupied parts of Ukraine. They're getting better radar and jamming, which is meaning that the Ukrainian drones aren't working so well. On the other hand, uh, Mr. Putin is very short of vehicles. Uh, they're now regularly reporting uh, vehicles that pull howitzers and artillery that go back to the 1950s. And, uh, of course, that means that they're 70 years old. Uh, perish the thought. And uh, above all, Mr. Putin is short of manpower. Uh, he's now apparently preparing reserves. He's been he's trying to recruit uh, Chechens and other non-Russian nationalities. He has uh, tried to involve the Belarusians, but they Belarus is uh, they're kind of wily and they're kind of crafty in a, in a kind of minor way. They're, I don't think they want to get drawn into it. However, uh, the Ukrainians have been pushed back from their position in uh, East Ukraine, essentially by the immense superiority the Russians enjoy in artillery and rockets. Uh, this stuff is not particularly well aimed, but they've got lots and lots and lots of it, uh, perhaps outgunning the Ukrainians by uh, 10 or 15 to one. And the result of this has been that the Ukrainians, rather than simply uh, allow their troops to be killed by these semi-aimed Russian uh, firings. Have uh, They've withdrawn from Luhansk, and uh, Putin is uh, within sight of uh, getting the whole Donbass uh, under a kind of, well, a very loose control. And also, of course, this territory has been totally ruined. I mean, economically, he's going to have to start. I mean, it, it, it will live on a Russian lifeline if it survives at all. Now, turning to the uh, not so far east, we turn to Kherson, uh, which controls supply uh, to the Crimea to, or to Crimea. And Kherson is where the canal is. It takes water to Crimea. And one report had Ukrainian troops within uh, a few kilometers of, 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 of control of the uh, city of Kherson. Uh, there are not enough Russian troops to administer really powerful blows in Donbass and at the same time secure their um, southwest uh, salient. So that is a strategic dilemma. Also, uh, General Breedloff, a retired U.S. Army, has mentioned, and this is something that I think is on the mind of anyone who can read a map, the Kerch to Taman Bridge uh, over the Azov Strait uh, is a very appealing target. And if it were taken out, it's 12 miles long. It was built after the occupation of uh, Crimea, and it's an absolutely key line of communication. It's very heavily guarded, and the Russians actually shroud it with smoke and all the rest to try to conceal it from attackers. But I think that if it were decided to take it out, it could be done. Um, interesting, and that would, that would make uh, Russian supply, resupply incredibly difficult. On the other hand, the Russians have indicated that they're not 
closing the uh, Kerch Strait in the Sea of Azov. So although there isn't much commerce going on, in theory, Ukrainian uh, vessels are, can, can still uh, go into the international waters there. But also on Mr. Putin's mind, I think, is uh, increasing bubbling in Central Asia. I've mentioned before how uh, the Turkish peoples of the so-called stands were very weak at the time in the 19th century when the great division of Central Asia was made, and they're starting to bubble. Of course, uh, Kazakhstan, which is an immense country of great wealth, is now seemingly moving toward democracy, and they are quite conspicuously out of step with Russia, which is not what Russia had in mind at all. Uh, the, and this brings to mind the whole question of what Turkey's role is going to be. There is a university in, uh, in Kazakhstan, which is basically a, a Turkish university. Remember that if you're a Kazakh, you can walk all the way from Kazakhstan uh, uh, to um, Istanbul, essentially speaking Turkish all the way. So there is, under the surface, uh, a tremendous uh, uh, nationalistic and religious force that was uh, unusually weak uh, at the end of the 19th century, but is now increasingly important. The whole issue of Tajikistan, whether China is going to come into uh, the Afghan area, this is uh, a nightmare, I think, for anybody in the Kremlin, and of course, Iran is also taking an interest in uh, in uh, the Central Asian areas. Pro also, professor, I wanted to make a note that during the week, and it's it's not especially reliable, but it's a headline that the Russian people are said to be in support of the Kremlin's decision. And what you're doing is you're illustrating that there are pressures all through the near abroad, the borderland, what used to be part of the Soviet Union. Does it follow that the Russian people would celebrate reorganizing the Soviet empire, especially the young people, because they do not have memories of the Cold War? Well, I think this is really, a, it's a paradox. Um, of course, uh, the Russians in the 19th century celebrated and glorified uh, their conquest of the Caucasus, uh, their conquest in the 18th century of, uh, of the Pacific shore, the foundation of Vladivostok in the 19th century, a city whose name means ruler of the East. Uh, th this uh, they rejoice in. But on the other hand, remember that the reason, the basic reason the Soviet Union collapsed was that it was overextended militarily and, and it had an economy that didn't work. And the same can be said a fortiori of uh, Putin's Russia, because in the time before Putin came in, uh, the Russians greatly reduced the uh, immense Soviet army down to something that was much more appropriate for what they thought was going to be a peaceful Russia. So um, there is a, a real division here. And I think that we have to remember that this, it's, it's rather like France. Uh, France is always seeking a, uh, 
a greater international role than she can sustain, just given her resources, her population, her size, her location, etc. And they accept that, but they don't, they're not really at peace with it. And likewise, the Russians, I think that when they saw the cost of reorganizing the Soviet Union, how much fighting would be involved, they would say, no, we don't want that at all. We'd just like to be able to remodel our apartments, which is what they were all doing the last time I was there. For the first time since 1917, I mean, you could go out and get lumber and, you know, faucets and all kinds of things. You could fix up your apartment and live in a decent place. They, I don't think that they're inclined to pay the cost of a Russian empire. And I think Putin thought he could get it on the cheap. Uh, that said, though, uh, you know, like the French, uh, and of course Russia is much better endowed than the French, uh, they have an idea of how great Russia could be that is um, unrealistic. In particular, they don't understand that Russia can only be great if she is involved with Europe and the West. And that was the great mistake that Stalin made after World War II, having won the war with USAID. He admitted that without USAID, he would have lost. He thought that the Soviet Union could become autarkic economically. Everybody, of course, I mean, the whole faculty at Harvard may have almost believed that socialism worked better than communism. Uh, so he thought, well, we'll go autarkic with this wonderful communism and we'll zoom ahead of the uh, United States. As it turned out that economically, Russia cannot thrive without uh, robust and friendly relations uh, with the West either. So I think your point is quite right. And of course, the longer the war goes on, the more these stresses and strains are going to cause Putin's empire to, to creak and the Russian people uh, to be uh, divided and not certain uh, of, of, of where they, what direction they should take. All right, let's go to Keith. Keith's point of view, Professor H.J. Mackinder, International Relations, commenting on three capitals, Russia's atten- intention to reconstruct in some fashion, whether rhetorically or politically or militarily, something that resembles the sentiment of the Russian Empire. Next, Kiev. what is its ambition these days, given the word stalemate being used routinely, along with long war in the Ukraine conflict? This is the Friends of History Debating Society. I'm John Batchelor. I'm John Batchelor. This is the Friends of History Debating Society. I'm with Professor H.J. Mackinder, International Relations, commenting on three capital points of view. Keith's point of view. Professor, I mentioned that these last days in reporting from the Washington Post, Josh Rogan, writing Global Opinions, I've learned that the Biden administration has unusual presentation of how to support Kiev. Part of that presentation involves weapon systems. We're given long lists of heavy artillery and vehicles and uh, helicopters. However, I learned that the decisions are being made at the White House, not at the DOD, and that the delay in getting equipment to Kiev, you will recall that President Zelensky has said often, give us weapons, give us more weapons, hurry them up now, and etc. I learned that there is no holdup as far as the Pentagon's concerned. Apparently, we have an apparatus that can deliver howitzers and shells 
to front lines overnight. It's a very good mechanism that is going on using Poland and other places and the railroad system in Ukraine. What turns out to be an accurate portrayal of the Trump of the Biden administration, however, is that decisions about what is lethal and what is not, what is offensive and what is defensive, what will uh, provoke Russia and what will not, these decisions are being made at the White House, perhaps with a group as small as Chief of Staff Ronald Klain, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, and the President. Now, that's a peculiar way to go forward if you're Keefe. Do you measure that Keefe can sustain its battle through the summer, now and again complaining that they're not getting weapons fast enough? Does this sound stable to you, Professor? Well, I think that this is bad for Keefe. But on the other hand, I notice that despite what I believe to be the truth of the Washington Post uh, report, that our, we're now going to have 12 of the HIMARS systems uh, in, uh, delivered to uh, Ukraine. Originally, uh, it was three or four, and then it's eight. And, of course, they could use, they could make very good use of 50 or more. Uh, this is a very odd way uh, to fight a war. Um, Churchill was a terrible problem, although he was a great war leader, because he imagined that he was a strategist and, a, and all the rest. So he um, was constantly calling up his generals and telling them, why don't you do this, why don't you do that? And they couldn't, they just drove him crazy, uh, because they, of course, knew far, far more about military operations than even Churchill. On the other hand, Roosevelt uh, was really a model of a war leader in the sense that he dealt with policy and he addressed the American people. But I think that in the whole of World War II, he only addressed something like 60 communications, which involved questions or suggestions uh, to the people whom he had chosen uh, to lead the war effort. In other words, he said, well, you're the ones who know what you're doing. Um, you do what you think is right. And of course, uh, World War II was a remarkable uh, display of America rising uh, in, from what she was in 1940 with uh, essentially no aircraft production and uh, very, very weak. Uh, and with a, a military that was weak and under-equipped, uh, we developed in a purely period of a year uh, a formidable military, uh, weapons that we needed, and we had leaders who were able to think strategically about how to use them uh, without being concerned about political support or what the views of the president were. So I, I think uh, that this is very bad for Keith. However, having said that, I don't think the United States uh, would want to even to appear to have uh, been the power that was responsible for a defeat of Kiev. I think that that's highly unlikely, that we're now committed, we're so committed, and the Western alliance is so committed, uh, and basically Ukraine is increasingly strong, uh, although there are 
problems in Ukraine, not, not surprisingly, that uh, I don't think that the U.S. is going gonna, is gonna to stand on the oxygen hose. Uh, I think we're just, we, we, but we may uh, not supply quite as much oxygen as would be optimal for the patient. But, there are, but remember that the countries that neighbor Ukraine, uh, and now that includes Finland and Sweden in NATO, these are countries that are fight. They're they're in this fight because they believe they're fighting for their lives, and in fact they are. As uh, uh, Foreign Secretary Truss in uh, Britain said, Putin must lose. The stakes of a Russian victory, uh, the danger of a Russian victory, that the dangers that it would pose, are are unimaginable, and likewise. If the United States, if if having uh, lost Afghanistan, you know, lost Vietnam, uh, made very little progress in the Middle East, if any, uh, if we then uh, flub Ukraine after all of the uh, statements, uh, Mr. Biden saying that Putin cannot continue in power, Mr. Blinken saying that we'll march together with the Ukrainians to victory, uh, this will reduce uh, the prestige and the leadership of all the rest of the United States to a to a low that uh, I that we haven't seen since the, the the catastrophic end of the Vietnam War. So um, I, I want to read a paragraph from Josh Rogan's most recent column about Ukraine. While U.S. and European leaders were huddling in Spain, this is the NATO meeting. Senate Foreign Relations Committee ranking Republican James Risch, Idaho senator, was in Ukraine touring the country. Senator Risch was escorted by Ukrainian forces because the State Department refused to provide him security once he crossed the Ukrainian border. He met with President Zelensky at the Ukrainian president's office in Kiev and came away with the conclusion that the current U.S. strategy has not properly adjusted to the latest phase of the fighting. What do you make of this, Professor, that the White House or the State Department at the direction of the White House denied security to the ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, a man who could easily be the chairman, come the election in November? Is this tell you anything about how the White House is treating Keefe and how Keefe is, is, is trying to deal with the White House? Well, I think, first of all, it tells you that the White House is not dealing competently uh, with the Congress. Uh, the, the ranking uh, minority member of the Foreign Relations Committee uh, is somebody of great importance. As for why we don't supply security, what are we trying to signal? Are we trying to signal, is, is the White House trying to signal something enigmatic to the Republicans? Are they worried you earlier used the word that they're from, I think, from that column, maybe it isn't in the column, that we're afraid of provoking Moscow? Well, if, um, what is Moscow now? I don't think, I don't think that we provoked them into war, but I don't think I don't think that we're going to somehow calm them down and have them purring on our lap now. Uh, and it's the time is long past when we should worry about whether uh, a visit by a U.S. senator is somehow going to make put Putin in a more uh, aggressive mood. I would I guess I would describe this uh, it, uh, as being unprofessional, uh, both in terms of domestic politics 
and deeply unprofessional when it comes to foreign policy, uh, because it's not clear what it means. And in any case, it's uh, out of order when you're dealing with, uh, with the Senate of the United States. Let's turn to Brussels' point of view, because that meeting referenced in Josh Rogan's column has concluded. The strategic concept document is quite blunt in declaring that Russian Federation and the People's Republic of China are a foe of the United States and the alliance. It is called the alliance repeatedly in the document, capital A. And when we come back, what does NATO expect? What is the next the next and the next and the next opinion of NATO as the war continues through the summer and as it worries, as it must, about the energy cutoff to significant members of NATO, Germany, for instance. Professor H.J. McIndoe, International Relations. This is the Friends of History Debating Society. I'm John Batchelor. This is the Friends of History Debating Society. I'm John Batchelor with Professor H.J. McIndoe, who very generously is observing three capitals' points of view in Ukraine conflict after a week of turmoil in Europe, Boris Johnson's apparent departure, and then what you'd have to say is hesitation about Ukraine from NATO members who are critical. I look at Olaf Schultz, who concerns himself with the energy shortfall and the doubts of his own coalition, the Greens in particular, about how to sustain Germans, the Germany economy through the threatened cutoff of natural gas using coal for electricity generating and keeping some of the nuclear power plants online past the deadline that was arranged by Angela Merkel some years ago after the tragedy in Japan. That is all very controversial in that coalition. In France... Emmanuel Macron is no longer leading a majority government, and Marie Le Pen has long been non-transparent about her opinion of Moscow, although we can believe that she doesn't share in some of the bellicose language from NATO. And in Rome, these are founding members. Boris Johnson is no longer present. We don't know what the next prime minister's opinion will be. That'll take some some weeks to choose. But in Rome... Mario Draghi, who is thought of very well by everyone, is troubled by his coalition, the Five Star Movement, that is not interested in foreign wars, that is very much interested in immigration, stopping it in Italy. So these are the core states of NATO. I understand Poland's aggressive. I understand the Baltics are worried. I understand Sweden and Finland are joining, and that strengthens NATO. But there are doubts in Ankara, there are doubts in Berlin, there are doubts in Paris, there's a completely missing player in London, and there are doubts in Rome. So, Professor, NATO's point of view, these many months into the war, seems to be various. How do you measure them? Well, I, I think that the uh, that NATO has actually shown a remarkable degree of rhetorical unity, uh, much more than... Putin expected, or even than uh, many commentators expected. Uh, what has been missing is a sense of, as the as the old song goes, that you're in the army now. Uh, these NATO countries are now involved in a war uh, that they did not start, but that's not going to go away, and whose effects are going to be felt more and more. The 
the Ukraine war is uh, becoming uh, uh, bigger than anybody expected. A resolution is uh, not in sight, and whatever resolution is going to require uh, a uh, a well-defined strategy uh, to achieve. Uh, and, it, and we have, it's very interesting that uh, Mr. Blinken, uh, how he could spend five hours talking to Mr. Wong, I don't know what they had to say. Of course, Mr. Wong can only repeat the lines uh, that he's fed, but I think that there is alarm at uh, at uh, Mr. Xi invited uh, Mr. Putin invited Mr. Xi to visit Russia, but Mr. Xi is he doesn't dare leave his capital unattended. He he didn't even spend the night in Hong Kong. He's there is a a a a, a terrible power struggle going on in China, but it's expressing itself in. Uh, uh, a desire, at least by some Chinese, to align more closely with the Russians, which desire seems to be reciprocated by Mr. Putin. Why else would he invite uh, Mr. Mr. Xi uh, for a visit? So I think that what we really have is uh, a situation where um, the United, the, the, the Europeans, particularly the British, and those NATO states that are right next to Ukraine or next to Russia, uh, they have, they see the situation clearly and are in the fight, but they lack resources. Uh, France and uh, Germany are not sure what to do, and they're, in a sense, nugatory with respect to this, certainly with respect to the resources that they could command. Uh, all Mr. Macron has sent some howitzers, and he has finally stopped uh, his long phone calls with Mr. Putin after Mr. Putin told him he'd rather play ice hockey than negotiate the, uh, the negotiate the war. So so much for the French role as the deliverer of peace. Now the U.S. has resources, but we don't seem to have the will or the competence. So I think that um, that we're probably going to see. Uh, a split, a gradual split emerging in which uh, some states do a bit and other states do a lot. And there are states that could move, such as Japan, although with Mr. Abe, who truly understood global politics gone, and Mr. Kishida, who is uh, much more conventional, albeit LDP uh, politician, uh, I mean, this is already having repercussions in Asia, and the Asia, for instance, the Japanese have to respond to Russian uh, violations. The Russians were in the Senkaku Islands the other day. Well, I mean, Russia has a major naval base out there and all the rest, uh, but um, it's still an interesting indication of how wars spread unless they're dealt with. And the only way that this war can be dealt with is by a uh, decisive military operation, which is big enough to beat the Russians in Ukraine, but not so big as to make a resolution 
impossible. As I've said before, I think something like the Battle of Saratoga in 1777, which essentially uh, made it clear to the British that they couldn't win, made it clear to the French that they could, uh, that it was opportune for them to move in and uh, spoil th- things for the British, but did not lead to a a, a, a global war, although the American Revolution was much bigger than many people understand. Uh, just for a little perspective, let me couch my final point this way, that the Ukraine war has now lasted twice as long as the fight between French and the Germans did in 1940. Of course, the strategy of von Manstein was absolutely brilliant. Uh, the French would have thought that they had very good weapons if they had had better strategy. But von Manstein, by crossing uh, the Rhine and going through the so-called impenetrable Ardennes, managed to come up beyond the Maginot Line and to encircle uh, the French and to reach and take control of the French coasts, all of the French coasts, within uh, 48 hours. Uh, so the French fought valiantly, but it was a very short. It was a bit over five weeks uh, that that war. They took heavy casualties, but they ended by coming up by coming to terms with Hitler uh, and uh, creating the Vichy regime, and then in 1943 formally uh, surrendering. So that was uh, that was World War uh, two in France. And I think that many people expected that Ukraine, which is about, well, it's about one Pennsylvania larger than France, uh, that Ukraine was going to be a similar, if not easier win with the Russians in the place of the Germans, but that has not happened. We haven't had a lightning victory by the Russians and we haven't had any, uh, sign of a collaborationist government being established in um, in Ukraine. Now, in World War I, I think this is the example, the troubling example that we have to turn to. In World War I, France was uh, bled white uh, for many reasons, but one of them was her absolute stubbornness and refusal to, to yield an inch uh, to the uh, Russians, to, to, to the Germans. Uh, of course, the Germans had managed to occupy very important uh, industrial areas at the beginning of the war. Uh, one could say that that was Donbass, but Donbass was not, has not been that for a while. In other words, uh, the really key uh, production facilities in Ukraine are uh, nuclear and others, and uh, much of it is not in the area that Russia controls. But as the two sides, France and Germany, exhausted themselves, and of course the British were involved in this too, um, General Ludendorff, having discovered or having taken advantage of what are called stormtrooper tactics, which go back to the Brasilov offensive, but they were perfected by the Germans, a, a way of approaching, bypassing difficult obstacles and so forth, great mobility, uh, Ludendorff struck out with a final offensive, which began rolling up France. And uh, it was only the entry, arguably, had the United States done nothing, arguably, Ludendorff would have reached the Atlantic uh, in this 
one massive final last gasp of an offensive, he would have been gasping on the Atlantic beaches, having defeated uh, defeated France. Uh, this is speculation, but I think a lot of historians and military analysts would think that made sense. The U.S. entered in April of 1917, uh, pouring troops who were untrained, and they were also unequipped. So when they got off the plane, uh, got off the boats from Hoboken, most of which were not American ships carrying them, uh, they landed in France, and they were issued uh, French helmets and French equipment. And the only thing that was not under the control of the French and the British was that General Pershing and Mr. Wilson agreed that the Americans were going to have an expeditionary force. They were not going to be used to fill gaps in what the, uh, where the French and the British felt they needed reinforcement. And this was really very lucky, because if you look at the battles that the United States forces fought, uh, they were in central France and even in uh, western France as the Ludendorff offensive uh, proceeded. And something like Bellow Wood and the various others that we think of uh, indicate how critical the, rule, the role of these untrained, uh, enthusiastic, poorly equipped, well-led, American forces were in stopping uh, the Germans, and with the defeat of the Ludendorff Offensive, uh, Germany, it was clear that Germany had lost. Now, the point is that the Ludendorff Offensive was an attempt to reach a decisive uh, outcome. In fact, it brought a decisive outcome, uh, but not the decisive outcome uh, that the Germans had been hoping for. If Ukraine is to prevail, she and her allies are going to have to agree uh, on, a, on a, a plan in which the Ukrainians get the weapons as fast as they need them, in which overwhelming force is used against the Russians, although focused on the Russians in Ukraine, because it's quite conceivable that, we, that the Ukrainians could, say, surround uh, an army group and uh, destroy it, and that that would provide an exit for Putin, although it's increasingly difficult to see how we can get a clean resolution. But that's the only sort of resolution. I think that to the extent that the United States is thinking about this at all, and of course the names that you listed who are figuring out about the weapons, uh, there's not one of them who know, has, has ever been in a war or knows anything about military strategy or even the most fundamental concepts uh, of warfare. We have lots of professionals in the Pentagon who could tell us how to help the Ukrainians win this quickly and put an end to it. But for whatever reason, I think that the, uh, the, 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 the sort of... Uh, the, the mirage of a negotiated settlement and of economic sanctions and so forth that was so clear in the early days of the war with the great self-assurance of Mr. Biden and Mr. Blinken's talk of his oddly, oddly self-contradictory statement as he described this immense military threat to the Ukraine and then said the only way to solve this is by negotiations. No, he was wrong. Military threat can only be solved 
it demands a military solution. After you have that, then you can go and sit down and talk about it. So uh, we now are going to have to decide whether the war is going to continue and to have second-order effects, ripple effects throughout the international order, laying great stress on uh, Europe, on on Russia, perhaps above all, uh, on Ukraine, of course, which is managing, although there, for instance, Mr. Poroshenko has just denounced uh, Mr. Zelensky. They've just reshuffled their ambassadors. Clearly, uh, they're they're feeling pressed. Uh, But unless uh, we decide to win this thing uh, with, in effect, a knockout punch that is carefully directed against a significant uh, Russian center of gravity, uh, but which is not going to, it's going to have the effect of terminating rather than escalating. I think that we're, we're, we're heading into the very, very worrying uh, fog of war, forest of war, whatever you want to call it, because uh, clearly Putin's not about to stop. I don't think that supplies to Ukraine are going to stop. And that means that this will just keep on going, and the shock waves will be, uh, we don't know where it's going to go, but as wars go on, they get worse. Yes, the stalemate and the long war, and it gets colder in Northern Europe about the 1st of September. Professor H.J. Mackinder, International Relations, commenting on Kiev and its point of view, Moscow, its point of view, and finally Brussels, its point of view, a double-edged problem for Brussels. It's not only military, it's energy. This is the Friends of History Debating Society. I'm John Batchelor.